the key is to kind of know what is the end goal that you're looking for. For us, it's data-driven results. We want to make sure that the information we're collecting and the platforms that we use and the decisions that we make are all data-driven and they're driving results. As you embark on the world of enterprise AI, setting a strategy is important. Every company should stay authentic to their core objectives. So, what are some of the most important factors to consider when building a data strategy? How do you align those with your business objectives? And what is changing in the business landscape when you compare it with what has historically been happening in data centers? Today, I'll be talking about these things and more with James Wade from health provider GuideWell. He'll speak to these questions and take us through his experience of executing on a data-driven strategy. Hi, I'm Des Blanchfield, and this is From Here to AI, a podcast that gives you real stories and best practices to help you navigate your journey to implementing AI. Welcome to another in our From Here to AI podcast series. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host. Hi, James. How are you today? Doing great. Doing great. Happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, thanks for making time to catch up. Um, now, um, just for uh, a quick intro, maybe if I could get you just to introduce yourself and, and just give us a quick summary of, of, of what your actual role at GuideWell actually means. What does that role entail? Basically, at, at GuideWell, we're segmented off in, in different you know, technology disciplines. But my current role is you know, I manage all of the, uh, the servers, the, you know, both distributed and mainframe side. I have the storage environment. Um, the databases, uh, the middleware, the web sphere, uh, all the things basically above the bare metal um, all the way to the application suite. And uh, basically I'm responsible for making sure all that stuff's up and running and available, um, tuned, um, and providing you know, excellent uptime availability to our, our members and to our, uh, our employees. Uh, so you know, my focus every day is to make sure that things are up and running and they're running well and that we're you know, running them at a great cost so uh, we can kind of provide relief to insurance costs for our members. In many ways, you're the guy that keeps the lights on all day and night so that uh, people get a good customer experience uh, when they come and deal with the, uh, the, the actual organization GuideWell, I guess. That's correct, yep. <laughs> great challenge, and, 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 and I'd love to get in some of the detail of that role in a minute. But before we do, maybe, uh, hopefully, if you don't mind, let's just get to know you personally a little bit first just so that folk are listening can kind of develop a rapport with you. Uh, where are you originally from? I'm actually from a very small town in uh, southwestern Virginia. Um, it's called Halifax, uh, Virginia. It's no one on this podcast probably will have ever driven through it. There's more cows there than people. Um, so obviously, when I, uh, you know, when you're born and raised in such a small town, I, I couldn't wait to get out. Um, and you know, I've always been kind of into sports and um, baseball and wrestling and that type of thing. And so I. Uh, I followed my dreams, and I went to college, and I was a collegiate wrestler. Um, but I always had kind of a, you know, a like for computing. You know, in the early, you know, I guess early '90s, uh, I graduated from college in 1998, um, and I went to a a, a company um, at the time it was called Philip Morris USA. Uh, it was a great place to work. Um, they treated us well. Lots of training. Learned a lot about technology there. Um, they were automating long before a lot of companies were, basically on the manufacturing side. So. You know, after 16 years in the tobacco industry, I was definitely ready for change. Um, you know, society had changed. Uh, the product itself had, had kind of definitely fallen out of favor. Um, and, I, you know, I wanted to do something different. And I got an opportunity to switch over into, uh, in, into the kind of healthcare industry. And Florida Blue gave me that, that opportunity. Um, and I've been thankful to be able to do it ever since. 
Um, so, you know, went from tobacco to healthcare. I think it's a really good um, life change for me, and uh, I'm, I'm just appreciative that Guidewell gave me the opportunity to do that. Um, and so, you know, I'm at Guidewell now, and, and I've been there for a couple of years, and I love it. So that's probably given you a really good background and, and essentially a pedigree to kind of come into where you are now, and that is that regardless of the industry you're in, and you've been, you've been through some big iron, you've been through Y2K, that's a, a challenge in itself. Um, tell us a little bit about the current role and, and kind of what you're doing. I mean, the, the, when we think about a VP of application uh, uh, deployment, um, it's, it's not a typical role that we'd hear about um, historically, but it seems to be more of a role that we're hearing about in that we're focusing now on continuous development and continuous um, integration. Things are moving very much to, a, a, I guess, a, an autom- orchestration, automation, DevOps world. I imagine that's a big part of what you're working on now around sort of what your core role is, is as far as you know, being the, the Vice President of Application Deployment at Guidewell is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the difference here and what's changed over the probably the last three or four years is you know, the applications are so tightly coupled um, with the databases and which are tightly coupled with the, the actual hardware that they're running on that you have to have someone that's going to be able, and a team, I, mean, I have a great team working for me, you have to have a team that's going to be able to look at how an application is performing um, and where can we tune it, how can we change it, how can we make it, you know, run better, run faster, and really deliver the information in a timely um, and effective manner to the, 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 the folks that are using it, whether it's an internal um, employee that has to get information to, to make a critical decision, um, or if it's a member that's interacting with us either through our website or, or actually you know calling our call center, um, you know I have to have oversight into a lot of the different technologies that are making up the the application stack, um, and I think that's why this role is is unique, challenging, but also the right way to do it. Uh, because you can't, you no longer can just be managing the servers and not worry about how the applications are responding. That's somebody else's problem. That's somebody else's problem. That 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 doesn't work anymore. Um, and if you're going to ensure that your members or your customers have a great experience, you have to have that integration from the application layer all the way down to the bare metal. And that's what we get to do in this role. And that's why I'm, you know, lucky to have it. And I really enjoy it. Yeah, we were talking earlier, and I'd like to dive into a bit more detail around that custom experience uh, component because we were talking earlier. But before we get into that, um, I'm really keen to kind of uh, get you to paint a picture of some of the world you're in currently. I mean, you've got a... You've got an exciting new role uh, that you're sort of you're taking on of late. You're, you've got a whole range of technology challenges. We're, we're sort of moving from very old school, big iron to new agile, nimble platforms. Um, can you maybe just uh, paint us a picture of, I guess, what that, that landscape looks like currently and the types of changes you've been through from what would have been sort of traditional, you know, online tra- uh, transactional uh, platforms in, in, in old school sense to kind of now what is the, I guess, you know, big data and analytics and, and sort of AI world. What does that changing landscape in the business look like and the types of, of things you've been doing historically in your data center world versus what it looks like currently? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of companies are probably going through the, the same transition. We may be a little further down the line than most. Um, we've got a very innovative CIO, Gary Anderson, um, and our chief technology officer, Paul Stallings, are both pushing us more towards an open source environment, kind of a, not really away from the mainframe, but, you know, his, we historically were, a, a, you know, a, a Group and policy insurance company, right? We we um, we sold insurance to, to big companies. They then give it to their member, you know, their employees, uh, and they use it. So we just process claims. And the mainframe is excellent at that. We you know we we get nine million claims in a day. Um, sometimes January, February, when per- people first get their insurance. So we had a mainframe that could do that, and we gr- we were great at it. But the industry is changing. Um, we're no longer just a group policy insurance company. 
Um, we sell directly to individuals, and we even have, uh, you know, we're actually a, we are a provider now. We own clinics where people go to and, and get services, um, and, and that's driving us to change the technology we're doing. It, we don't have the same workload we had just five years ago. So what we're doing is we've slid, you know, we've slid a lot of the work away from uh, the mainframe um, over to more distributed systems and power and intel. Um, our database platforms have completely uh, been augmented by, you know, the more open source databases. We still run DB2. We still run Oracle, and that, that's still, you know, the bread and butter, you know, kind of the, the system of record. But when we're, you know, wanting to have really fast interactions with information to get it back to the customers, we're using things like MongoDB and, uh, you know, Postgres and Cassandra. Um, we have a dupe, you know, that's actually doing kind of our translation layer. I mean, all the new things um, that you hear going on out there, you know, we've innovated and actually put into place. Um, and we, we you know, what we found is, you know, we're, we're having to do it all I mean, from your traditional DB2 running on mainframe all the way up to, you know, the, the, the newest of open source things in Docker containers. Um, and that, you know, it's a challenge, but it's really exciting to do that. But, you know, we, we have a pretty large environment. Um, you know, we've got a, a, a really large uh, Z13 that we purchased a while back from a mainframe environment, brand new, you know, it's a year old. Um, we run Power 7, Power 8, and we have some Power 9 boxes on the floor now. Um, roughly, you know, 2,000 uh, LPARs that run on that. We have 6,500, uh, you know, kind of, you know, Red Hat and Windows boxes. Um, we have a couple thousand databases. Very large environment, very large. Um, and it's growing. It's, it's not shrinking. Um, so we have pretty much all the technologies in the house, and we're just trying to figure out a way to kind of bind them together and, and make them you know, run and be responsive and deliver information back to the customers. The type of scale you're talking about there um, just makes me uh, sort of draw this mental picture that, you know, in, in some small to medium-sized enterprises, when they go through a change of technology or a change of new platforms or the shift from, from a, a proprietary heavy to open source heavy shift, often they can do a full refresh and it's all, all new goodness. But I mean, you're talking about some very big platforms in that is, you know, without the negative connotation where you've got some legacy infrastructure, you've got some existing big database platforms that you're also, you know, in, I guess, uh, adopting all of the latest and greatest in open source and, and, and new methodologies. Um, how did you how did you get to the point where you decided you need to have a look at different platforms? What was the catalyst to sort of, I guess, at one point for the team to say, let's let's have a look at what's on the market and 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 then that journey through to you know a whole regime of reviewing what's on the market, a bunch of testing the hardware to get to the point where you realize that power systems were the way to go and and I guess particularly the new Power Nine and and what that gave you. Yep, we um, you know, honestly, it, it's been a it's it's kind of been an organic journey, but a very quick one. Um. You know, we've got some really good developers in-house. I mean, uh, Guidewell doesn't outsource any of their development, right? And we, we feel like we know our data better than anyone else. Um, we know our members better than anybody else, and we know what they want and the process it takes to kind of serve them and satisfy their needs. Um, we have some excellent developers that we've kept with us for years. They're loyal to the company, but we spend a lot of money training them, um, giving them all the resources they could possibly uh, need to go out. And we, we encourage experimentation in some of these newer platforms. And the developers have come back with great ideas in uh, you know some of these newer technologies to say, look, we can do A, B, and C faster, cheaper, better if we use our you know and, and legacy. I know it does have a, a negative connotation, but you know our legacy legacy systems run great. Um, but we supplement the legacy systems with a lot of this open source stuff. 
we're not jumping in and just saying, look, we have to get rid of all of our DB2 and Oracle, you know, move it all to Mongo. What we're doing is we're layering the things that like a MongoDB or a Postgres can do great on top of the reliability and sustainability of some of the, the you know, the more traditional platforms. But our development team uh, is encouraged to go out and find solutions, and what they've brought back has been incredible. Um, and our CIO, Gary, um, he came in from, a, a, you know, Magellan, but prior to that, he was a... a he was a he designed the cockpit interfaces for the F-18 uh, fighter jet, right? So he's he's kind of got this um, affinity for user experience and and you know having the information at your fingertips because you know a pilot has to have that right away uh, to make critical decisions, keep that plane going. Well, he's kind of given us that same kind of drive. Um, how do we have information at people's fingertips in a very unique display way so that they can interpret what they're seeing quickly to to kind of um, get the information from our customers, and that's led us to look for a lot of like Node.js and you know all the things that you see their college campus focus, or you would see at Google, or you would see at a lot of these startups in Silicon Valley. We've adopted those very quickly, um, and we have a a fail fast um, permission really, right? We can go out, we test, we prototype, um, you know, we do a bunch of stuff. If it works, great, excellent, and we've had a lot of successes. If it doesn't, we're not holding people, you know, we're not saying oh it was a failure and um, you know, you're, you're in big trouble and it's going to affect your performance review at the end of the year. That's not what we do. If you fail fast and you learn something from it, it's seen as a success. So it's really a culture um, that Gary and Paul Stallings have built at Guidewell that's really allowing us to do this. And I think if you kind of turn your development teams loose and your infrastructure teams loose and give them permission in development to kind of make mistakes and fail and not, you know, not have to worry about the consequences, uh, it, it opens up the power of your organization. And so I think organizationally that's what's led us to this place. Um, and we're, we've had some great successes. Um, you know, and we've had, we've had some failures too, but as long as you're being smart about what you're doing and where you're failing and it doesn't impact your members, it doesn't hurt anything to try new things. And that's, that's the culture we have, which is why it's an excellent place to work. Wow. I, uh, I imagine there's a whole show just in that conversation there, but I do love the idea that you've got uh, a CIO that's uh, used to throwing things around at nearly Mark 1 and 2 and uh, has now got their whole heads-up display mentality with uh, call center data and, and, and data-driven decision uh, processes. But I love the idea that you've given your developers uh, a free reign to a point to fail and fail fast because that we've seen such massive successes and gains in, I guess, what we've sort of traditionally seen is more of the internet and web-scale businesses, as you said, or the, the Twitters and the LinkedIn and the Googles of the world and Google search and YouTube. But often companies haven't done what you've gone through there, which you described very well of, of, of trying where that might work in an enterprise space and particularly in your space with health because I think in health, a lot of people are concerned about change because often historically change is equated to risk. Um, but it sounds like you've, you've executed amazingly on it. And, and I'm really interested to understand uh, when, you, when you went through that process of, and it was interesting to hear you say it was an organic process, which, which I think is a, a very healthy way to go things through this process, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, but you mentioned a couple of things uh, prior to starting the show that I really wanted to tap into. You, you commented you saw something in the line of like a five-time gain in performance, and you gave me a really great little anecdote around what that actually meant in the customer experience. I wonder if you could recap on that sort of um, through that test process, you, you saw this uh, performance gain, which is one thing, but I liked the way that you described what it equated to in the customer experience side of things, and, and I think you mentioned something to the effect of like a speed up from 45 to 35 seconds historically to sub 10 seconds and what that meant to people on the app or on the web or even on, a, on an IVR or talking to a person on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something that I think would apply to pretty much any industry that has customers in a call center, kind of a contact center um, mentality. I mean, you know, a lot of people are driving their 
um, the companies are driving their, their customers to kind of use a more mobile experience. And I think people love that. But every now and then, um, the mobile experience that lets you down or there's an issue or a problem, you just want to talk to a person. We have the same, uh, you know, we have the same needs. Our members sometimes, you know, look, I, I really just want to understand, you know, how this claim is being adjudicated or, um, you know, what this prescription is going to mean or you know, that type of stuff. What's it going to cost? So they want to talk to a person. And a few years back, um, you know, we had our typical contact center. They would call in um, and we were looking at, you know, how can we make this better? What can we do? To make the experience better, because typically when you call the con, you know, your insurance company, you're not calling them to say, you know, have a great day, and I'm really happy with everything, and hang up. You, there's an issue, so you're already in a kind of a, a mild, low stress situation, and people would call in and have to give their information multiple times as they got moved around through the contact center to get something figured out. Um, our systems were slow, um, antiquated. They were dealing with green screens and um, trying to scroll through to find you know, member information. They have maybe five or six different screens open trying to correlate you know, what this member is telling us and different systems. And it just was a mess to kind of figure out what, what can we do, what, what information do we have, when's the last time you called us, um, how can we help you? Um, you know, and, and we, we saw where members would be put on hold sometimes or up to a minute and a half um, as part of the call. And all they're just, they're either listening to the music or they're listening to us type away on a, a PC and breathing the phone. And that's just not, that is not an experience that anyone wants to deal with. Um, and with the advent of mobile applications and technology, everybody expects things just be faster, more automated. Um, so we did a you know pretty in-depth study. We, we tracked a bunch of calls, um, and we found about a minute and a half of every call was just quiet time, whether you're on hold or us um, you know, poking away on the, the machine trying to get your information together. Um, that did not lead to a good, a good experience for the members, and it also frustrated our, you know, our contact center folks. That they, those people are really focused on driving happiness back into our members, and if their systems are aren't working well, you know, it gets them frustrated, and sometimes you go off to a frustration, and then every, you know, it's just not a good feeling. So, we um, we we looked at traditional systems. We encouraged the developers to go. They went and found a you know a solution that had uh, kind of Node.js and a heads-up display, like you said. I really like the way you, you said that, Gary. Kind of on a, really on the back of a napkin, seriously developed kind of what he wanted the display to look like. Um, the developers ran off. They they got uh, Node.js, MongoDB. We built out an Intel system, and we got the information up and running. And you know it cut the call times down from, you know, the quiet time down from a minute and a half to, you know, 30, 45 seconds, which is a great increase, right? I mean, every, no one would be upset about that. But you still have 35 or 40 seconds of quiet time on the phone. That's that's still not what we're looking for. Um, so we partnered with uh, our power seller, Bruce Jones. He gave us some uh, some loaner equipment, uh, some, some new Power 8s. Um, he pushed through uh, kind of getting Mongo certified on power, on the open power platform. We put together a test, um, you know, and what was really interesting about that is, you know, he, he you know, he, this was an Intel solution that he wasn't a part of to begin with. Um, he shows up, he says, what's going on? How's it going? And from one conversation with an IBM power rep, you know, he said, Let, let's try this. Got in the backside, you know, took it up the chain, got IBM to come to the table with some power gear. They helped us tune it. Um, they got Mongo up and running on it. Uh, and it went from you know a 45 second average down to sub five seconds waiting for the information to show up. So you you go from you know a minute and a half to five seconds over a, about a less 18 month period, um, and that drove a lot of goodness into the organization, right? From a from the fact that look our members are happier when they call. They're not always going to be happy because they're not getting the exact answer that they want, but they're not sitting there on hold. Um, 
for, for, for you know a minute and a half quiet so they're getting off the phone a little faster that's that's a good thing but it also gave uh, you know a relief to our contact center people because they had one spot to get all the information so they're not having to, to kind of you know try to soothe an irate customer and then inside you know sit there and fight the technology that they'd been given for years before they you know the technology becomes seamless where they can really focus on um, you know, having a, a happier voice to the customer and really driving that, that, you know, I'm here to help you experience versus I'm going to fight through this technology and see if I can help you out and figure it out. It's just a different way of dealing with the member now. So that makes the, the, our customer advocates a lot happier because, you know, instead of worrying about technology, they're worrying about how can I solve this problem for our member. And ultimately, that's what our mission is to do, right, to ensure better outcomes for our members. And we just feel like that was, a, you know, a small change that IT really enabled that had big results. Um, and it, it's not just from, you know, obviously we want happy members, but it also kind of drives down your cost, right? We've, we've seen explosive growth at Guidewell. Uh, we've basically doubled in size in the last six years, um, but, we, but our call center hasn't doubled in size. And the reason, the way we've been able to do that is, you know, make the calls, each of them more effective and more efficient. Um, if you can get folks on and off, get their problems solved in a quicker amount of time, you can drive more volume to each contact um, center representative. Uh, and that's not something that's exclusive to us. That would be, you know, any company that has a call center. And I would venture to say that, you know, the majority of the ones out there that are doing business today still have that, that customer interaction at the call center level if they need it. Um, and again, a lot of the, the gains that we saw was based on the fact that IBM showed up to the table um, and we ran these, these really innovative systems um, on power. Wow. There's, there's so many takeaways from that, but, you know, just listening to that, the whole journey from your focus to improving the business systems and the platform, the performance and reducing, I guess, the cost of operation, getting a better ROI, all the way through to a better customer experience. But the thing that really struck me was you balance both sides. You, you've got the business requirement to provide a better, I guess, you know, more cost-effective technology stack and more scalable. You've got happier customers, but in the middle of that, you've got a happier uh, employee experience that then flows back to the organization that if, if staff are happy supporting their customers, they're happy coming to work and everything flows nicely. Underpinning all that though, I mean, there, there's a number of big challenges that I'd love to get into we can just briefly. Uh, I mean, when you think about these big systems and you've got IBM coming to the table, bringing the power systems capability, you get these 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 you know, magnificent performance gains, I mean, five times and better you mentioned. Um, data strategy and the linkage to AI, uh, I'd love to get your insight on kind of how you went through that journey of, of even just, I guess, you know, deciding you were going to go down this route to applying uh, not so much just artificial intelligence as a general thing, but specific to some of the elements. But at the very, very beginning, what, what was the thinking around how you built your data strategy? What, what, what did you do to kind of get to the point where you aligned with what the business is looking for as far as business objectives go? What do we want to do as a company um, across the whole of the Guidewell uh, group? And, and how did you align that linkage, I guess, to what you're going to do with data, the type of data you're going to get, how you treat that data and the, the, like processing the data, presenting it all the way to a, sort of like a, you know, that, that napkin heads up display thing. Uh, what was the first sort of step in thinking around building your data strategy? You know, we... We had more of a short-term data strategy, which was, you know, to start using the right data kind of organizational platform for the right type of data, right? There are certain things that you would, you, you need a, you know, the big iron kind of mainframe to do, DB2, and um, they're, just, they're exceptional, like big, large batch processing, which we haven't gotten away from, and a lot of companies still do. Um, but what we, I guess our strategy was pretty simple. Don't force a database to do things that, it's not kind of designed or built to do. Um, 
I think a lot of companies, and I've seen this, you know, we, you know, when we were, I was in the manufacturing space, you know, we had a new shiny database and we would try to get it to do things that it quite honestly was not designed to do at this point in time. Um, and so what we're doing is we're, we're picking the right database solution because there's a ton of them out there, and especially on the open source side. There's databases that are very, very specifically designed to handle certain workloads, and they're not designed to handle other things. So, you know, there is no silver bullet in your data strategy as to what platform you're going to put it on. You need to kind of focus fit what the data is that you're doing and what you're trying to do with it. And that, you know, we kind of use that as a mantra, very simple. You know, it's, you know, use the right platform for the data and what you're trying to do. Um, and that's kind of our short-term strategy to actually implement this thing. And we've had some other, other applications we've developed that have done that as well. But from a longer-term perspective, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're collecting the right data and putting it in the right locations. Um, and we have, we, we collect tons and tons and tons of information from our interactions from a member, you know, on the website or from a call center. Um, we're monitoring our, you know, our social media presence. You know, if somebody's not happy with us and they tweet about it, we get that information and kind of correlate that to back to, you know, was there a call that they made to us that we didn't handle properly? Um, and then your, your general data that you gather all day long, your claims and what people are doing at the doctor's office, what prescriptions that they have, that type of information. And each of those have a different need, a different kind of form factor and where they, they go. Um, and so our strategy is, you know, collect the data that we get and put it in the right locations and then co kind of coalesce it later. And then really the things that you don't need, get rid of it. Don't, we don't need to keep every single piece of information about everything that's ever occurred forever. The most relevant information about a member is the most useful. Um, because we kept everything and we put it all in DB2 and I mean, we just don't have enough storage to keep track of all that. So longer term, it's, you know, not just figuring out which database technology works best for running queries against, but it's what information are you actually going to gather and where are you going to store it so that you can easily retrieve it and use it um, to kind of drive, you know, better customer, better member experiences for us. So that's, that's really what our strategy is today. Um, and so it's, it's not a, a form fit, one solution fits all. It's, you know, be smart about what you're, what you're collecting and then what tools you're using to actually extract information from the data. I like that. It, uh, it's almost like the agile approach to data strategy. And that is that you've, when you look to your whole journey towards AI in general, you, you, it seems to me that you've gotten your house in order as far as your data goes. You've made some very good decisions around, as you said, what to keep and what not to keep. I think there is a very big trend to hoarding data and we end up with a scenario where we sort of, you know, I joke about building data swamps and not data lakes. Um, but uh, I do like that idea of keeping it very simple, very lean. And, and the, the salient point that jumped out of there for me was just, you know, making sure you're collecting data that actually makes sense to, to link towards the customer because... Uh, you know, even collecting the social media data, if you can make a decision on that, great. But then once you're done with it, I guess, you know, you, you don't really need to hoard it forever. Um, I'm keen to also, um, I mean, you, I really like the insight you've given us around your, your very nimble and agile approach to how you approach data and the type of data you're working with. Um, one of the things I'm really keen to get your insights to is, is some of the key learnings around the cleaning up of data. You mentioned that you've got a, a colleague who comes from more of a data science bent, which is very much my part of the world, um, and looking at the type of data and how that data is being processed. What kinds of things did you learn when you went through the process of testing the power platforms and saw these performance gains? Um, when you've got it on a big DB2 database on a mainframe, it's great for transactional stuff. But when you're starting to do analytics and applying machine learning to data, you're moving data around a lot. You're moving large volumes of data. You've got lots of people doing analytics on it. Um, what, what kind of key learnings did you glean from that process of putting the power systems through that process? And, 
And, and what sort of wins have you had around that data science piece and, and, and working with that in your overall data pipeline? Well, there were, there were really two wins um, when it comes to the Power Platform that we saw, you know, as we went through this process. I mean, one, just the availability numbers. I mean, you know, I think anybody listening to this podcast probably knows. I mean, the, the, the availability from a, a power system um, far is superior to the Intel platform. So, you know, we felt comfortable moving it there um, initially because, you know, if it has to run and it has to be up, power is a great platform for that. Um, so that, you know, that's a given. But from the performance perspective, I mean, we, we I'm not saying we're surprised, but, you know, we were, okay, we were a little surprised at how better it ran, um, you know, these, these data workloads, these, these large um, Mongo workloads in power. And, you know, I, I'm not, you know, a, a power engineer, but, um, you know, I've got some guys that work for me that are very good at it, and they, they just like the way that, you know, we had Spark in the in-memory processing on the power platform that really allowed it, instead of having to go hit the disks um, and, and do a lot of the workloads, and you could run it in memory on the power box, and those things have a very large memory capacity. Um, the CPU is very, very, very fast. Um, they can handle multi-thread, you know, queries, and um, they just they seem to handle the workload better. And when we actually ran the test, um, you know, test A, test B, it runs in two and a half minutes on Intel, it run in, you know, 15, 20 seconds on power. Um, uh, and and we, didn't see, we didn't have a single workload, you know, of all the tests that we did, we didn't have a single time where the Intel platform beat the power platform. We had some that were, where they would be close, but even when they're close, you're talking 25, 30% difference. Um, and that was close for it. And, you know, 5X, that's, you know, 500 times, you know, or five, you know, five times faster. Um, but even the ones where it was close, it was still a 20 or 25% uh, import, you know, performance increase on the power side. So, you know, we, it's really the best of both worlds. We, we have, a, a, the, you know, some of the most reliable hardware on the planet in the power platform. But we also have some of the best performing hardware on the planet in the power platform. I think a lot of people, um, uh, you know, the, there's a whole bunch of history around sort of this. There used to be a meme that, uh, you know, no one got fired for buying an IBM. But uh, what a lot of people didn't understand about that phrase is that when, when you're doing business with someone like IBM and what they bring to the table, it's not just the hardware. It's not just the software. It's not just the operating systems. It's not just the database. It's that whole gamut, the entire end-to-end, zero-to-hero journey of someone who knows your business, who knows your account who knows you individually uh and and knows enough to kind of sit at the table and 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 be part of the family if you like and my experience to to help you kind of get to the next level Uh, and and i remember seeing you talking on stage uh, a couple weeks ago at think uh think 2018 ibm's uh, new annual event in las vegas and you were talking about a whole range of things around next generation private cloud for ai and particularly some of the analytics you're doing and i'm, I'm keen to kind of understand the types of challenges that you're going to throw analytics at and and what you're going to run on the power systems uh walk us through kind of you know what that what sort of workloads and what sort of gains are you going to get from that now that you're throwing some of the heavy analytics onto these power systems um and and what has that challenge been like yeah, I mean, again, everything that we do is, you know, mission-driven, right? How do we improve, um, you know, the health outcomes for our members? And going forward, if you think about machine learning and AI, the information that we are able to collect, and if our members allow us to collect it, um, can really drive better outcomes, right? If you think about the entire health landscape, you know, you may have one, two, three, maybe four doctors, um, at any given time, and, and each of them are writing prescriptions, and they don't know, you know, what 
what other other doctors are writing you. They don't know um, what you're doing at home. They don't know. But we, as you know, the the payer, have like that kind of overall vision of everything that's going on with you and your health at any given time. Um, so what you know, a, a more immediate thing that we're looking at now is you know how do we you know, if, if a doctor writes your prescription for heart medication and another doctor writes you some, you know, antidepressant, if what if there's a collision between those two medications that we've seen by mining our data and machine learning that we've seen that, you know, a certain percentage of our members have an issue when these two medicines are, are kind of put together. Um, you know, the, the amount of information and claims that we have, a person's not going to catch that. But if you have some really powerful power systems in the back end that are doing these types of correlations, you know, we can prevent maybe you from taking two medications that shouldn't be taken together and you end up in the, in, in the emergency room um, or worse, right? I mean, if we can kind of head these things off, um, it does two things. One, and the most important part of it is the member has a better experience. They don't end up in the hospital from a, a prescription collision, right? But two, if they don't go to the emergency room, it saves, you know, guide well money. I mean, we don't have to pay tens of thousands of dollars um, to the hospital because you had to go there because you had some very bad reaction to two medicines. And that's just a very micro example of what we are, are able to do with the information that we have today. And we're going to do more and more of that, right? So and we're in a unique position as a, as a payer and now moving more to that provider model to be able to have all the insight that we would need to make sure that you're okay. Other thing is el the, the elderly, right? I mean, um, in the Internet of Things and gathering data, we can, you know, they can put devices in your home that kind of track your movements all day long, and you can detect a fall, and not, and not like LifeLock, you know, or the, the Life Alert where you mash the button and help me out falling, but we can detect a fall without you even hitting a button. Um, and we can send folks right away. But, you know, that's an extreme example. But we could also, hey, your blood sugar's, uh, been off for two or three days, and instead of sending you to the you know, emergency room when it gets out of whack, we could actually have someone come to your house and check up on you, knock on the door. Hey, just want to let you know, I know you haven't been checking your, your sugar and this, that, and the other, but we're here to kind of, you know, what's going on with you? Are you taking your medicine? You're not taking your medicine? Um, things like that. I mean, that, that type of stuff is going to revolutionize, you know, kind of the, the payer and provider model as more and more companies you know, kind of merge and, and come together. And I think it's going to end up leading to a lot of great things in, in, the, in the healthcare industry. And we at Guidewell want to be in front of that. We want to lead that revolution, not react to that revolution. And, you know, with our current systems that are, you know, running on power and, with, you know, with the help of IBM, we believe that, you know, we will be one of the front runners out there. We are today. I mean, if you talk to Gartner or Forrester or anybody that comes in and look at our systems, um, they all say, you know, we're we're very much ahead of a lot of our competitors in this space. And so that's going to be key for us. Um, it's just getting the information from the Internet of Things or just gleaning the information that we currently collect in our systems and start doing, you know, having using it to have more insight into making the members happier and driving down our costs. So it's a great story and it's an exciting time to be at, at Guidewell because, you know, we, we have leadership that's that's into that and, and, and kind of see the future of that. So. You know, we, yeah, we're an insurance company, but if you look at the the things that we're doing today, we're we're more of a information management and technology company than anything else. And you know that that's what's so exciting about working there. Wow, I, I want to send my CV to you straight away. Uh, it's interesting hearing you talk about that. What, what what really jumped out at me as well, just as a side thought, was that you've gone through this journey of, I guess, looking at the commercial and business requirements. You've gotten some great successes in the technology requirements. You've picked a great partner in the form of IBM and, and, and the Power Platform to, to see you through that future proofing. 
But you've also then, and two areas where you've gotten a better performance and experience of the customer in reducing the time to get things on the screen and consolidating the, the dashboarding of that data from the, the, you know, the I think you mentioned uh, your CIO's F18 background with a heads-up display kind of thinking. But it seems to me at the other end of the spectrum, um, you've gone from bringing a more human face to the customer experience to then also balancing that with leveraging bleeding edge technology that AI is going to give us and, and initially machine learning, I guess, but eventually probably the likes of you know deep learning and what Watson can do. I mean, we've all heard the story about I guess, you know, what is it, circa 2011 or whatever, then Watson sort of really hit the scene on. And I remember it because I was a big Power 7 fan at the time and remembered seeing these big blue racks of, of Watson running. Um, but, um, yeah, now that we're sort of on the Power 9 uh, uh, generation of the platform, uh, I can imagine, sorry, you can you can paint that picture you've just had where, you know, if someone's falling or they've got a smartwatch or a Fitbit, uh, that you can integrate your systems into it and then link to AI at that level where they can have a conversation with their smartwatch or their smartwatch can decide that it doesn't know the answer and kind of bring a human into that. Um, before we wrap up, I'd like to, to do something that I often do on shows. I'd like to hand you a virtual crystal ball and, and kind of just say, look, um, James Wade, if you were going to look at this virtual crystal ball and with all the things you've talked about with the, the commercial and the business and the technology and the data benefits you've had through this whole process of I guess, starting your journey towards AI and getting your data in order and getting your data strategy mapped out, picking the power platform to get that competitive advantage on commercial and technology, amazing journey with the testing process when you get to the point where artificial intelligence becomes a, a core part of what you're doing and, and it becomes the forefront uh, three to five years time uh, if you were just going to go to blue sky this um, if you were to gaze into this virtual crystal ball what are some of the things that you think are just over the horizon for you um, both i guess uh, yourself professionally and also guidewell as an organization but maybe even just for the world in general where do you see given the the i guess the privileged uh, view of the world you've got and what you're doing in the organization there, particularly with the likes of uh, IBM behind you. Um, where are we going in three to five years? What are some of the big things that you're seeing uh, over the horizon that you're planning for? Yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting. And, you know, much like Uber kind of revolutionized the, the transportation industry and, you know, it's kind of ubiquitous now. It's, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, I think healthcare is going to be even bigger than that. I mean, I think if you, if you think five years out, I think telemedicine is going to be, you know, a huge huge deal. I mean, you know, we're not going to need to have someone come into the doctor's office. Um, you'll have, you know, on your, your smart TV at home, you could, you could, you know, say, hey, get me my doctor. You could talk to it. Um, and then the doctor would come up on the screen and talk to you about whatever issue you're having at the time. Um, you know, we can, with the Fitbit information, you know, through the airwaves and, you know, through the internet, he could get your vitals, that type of stuff. Um, could actually prescribe you medicines, uh, you know, or prescriptions or, or remedies or whatever it's going on with you that day. And then you, you have a delivery company like Amazon, bring it to your house the next day. And you never left your house for this type of, of thing, or you, you never left the office. Um, it's, it's not inconceivable to believe that we would make it as easy to have health care and have people, you know, kind of um, be able to reach their doctors instantaneously. Um, to, you know, to, to, to receive care wherever they are in the world, whether you're in the back of a cab in New York or if you're, you know, at your house or, or you know, wherever you are, maybe at the doctor's office. And, and you know, so you've got like that, that telemedicine presence that'll be coming much sooner than later. I've already seen um, some deployments of these these doctor pods where you go into the, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in an office building, you go into this pod, you shut the door behind you, a nurse pops up on the screen. You tell her what your issue is. This pod can 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 actually um, 
take a saliva test, stick it in there, can run some diagnostics, whether you have maybe like a, a flu, a bacteria, a virus, blah, 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 just from that type of thing. It, it can, you know, put a, a heart um, monitor on or a blood pressure monitor on and get your vitals and that type of stuff right there in the pod, and you don't actually have to go see the doctor. Uh, I think that's coming sooner than later. And if you look even just a few years past that where you have, you know, now we have these automated cars, I think we're going to have automated um nursing there's never be a time when you won't have doctors um that are that you know you have to interact with but as we get more predictive about what you know symptoms are and, and you you know you have learning over time if you have a sore throat or this or that and you put these things together that with a very high degree of certainty here's your situation you may not have to see a human at all for some of your more minor medical procedures or or minor medical things or your yearly checkup so you know you don't have to worry about scheduling these things out and leaving work and doing those types of, of activities. I, I, I don't see that's inconceivable, and I don't think that's too far away. Um, so we'll use, the, you know, the data that we collect and, and learn over time to, uh, you know, kind of to do those types of things. I, I think that's where medicine is going. Um, there's all, I've already seen, uh, you know, prototypes of it. And this also, you think about the, the developing world. You, th- you talk about Africa or Asia or, you know, India and some of these more remote locations, even, you, you know, you know, South America, um, we can deliver care to people ultimately through st- smartphones and delivery services, right? Um, some people don't have access to a doctor every single day. Uh, and we, you know, through telemedicine or automated medicine, we feel like we can drive the cost of healthcare down to ensure more healthy people all over the world. And I think that's where you're, what you're going to see. This is why you see companies like Amazon getting in, talking about getting into the, the medical um, play and you, and you know there's going to be a company out there that's going to disrupt this that's not even around yet right there's going to be some kid in a basement with an idea that's going to change the way we deliver these systems and at guidewell you know what we want to do is kind of anticipate that partner with those don't don't fear change but partner with people that are making these changes embrace it and just really again drive for better health health outcomes um, for our members, no matter which direction that takes us from a technology perspective. But I, I definitely think the telemedicine revolution is coming. Um, you either can get on board or you can go out of business. And, you know, I, for one, would like to stay in business and be a part of it. It seems to me that, uh, and I love the sound of that. I mean, when you talk about, uh, you know, the 54 nations that make up Africa and the 1.1 billion people there, when you talk about 1.3 billion people in India and 1.5 billion people in China, uh, the greater nation there, um, you know, there is a massive opportunity on a whole bunch of levels there to sort of broaden, I guess, not you know, the, the market breach in that, you know, it's all well and good to look at your backyard in North America and, and obviously South America's uh, very close. Uh, but, you know, it also aligns with, I guess, what we're seeing in the telco industry um, and, and, you know, with IoT and, and then 5G becoming a thing where low latency, high speed connectivity to mobile devices is becoming a thing and you can now do real-time surgery remotely. Before we wrap up, um, I'd, I'd really like to just get your insights into uh, people listening to this have got uh, really developed a good rapport with you. They've got to know you personally, your background. They've got a good insight into your your role in general, as, I guess, a VP of Application Deployment at Guidewell. Um in this whole process, um, what kinds of takeaways, what sort of advice could you recommend? Uh, all the things we've talked about have been very valuable, and thank you for that. Um, if there were some key takeaways around that whole process of getting started with AI through what you've been with the partnership with IBM around the hardware and the software and systems uh, selection, I guess, and the organic growth into Power9 uh, and, and what comes after that, 
What are some of the key takeaways that you'd give to people just around how to prepare with getting started for AI? Sort of, you've talked about the data strategy, you've talked about some of the business benefits and the customer benefits. What are the key sort of steps from crawling to walking to running to sprinting of just, you know, quote unquote, preparing to get started with AI? I think, you know, the, the big, if I, if I had one thing that you would take away from this, I mean, I think the key is to kind of know what is the end goal that you're looking for. For us, it's data-driven results. We want to make sure that the information we're collecting and the platforms that we use and the decisions that we make are all data-driven and they're driving results. For us, it's for you know a, a better member experience. For another company, it may be you know uh, uh, lower cost manufacturing. For another company, it may be you know faster delivery times, transportation industry, things like that. I mean, I think you have to set what are you trying to accomplish, and that has to be your mission. And everything that you do has to be pointed in that direction. Um, so you know, for us, it was how do we make the member experience better? And from that mission, you know, the technology team had parts to do, the data teams had parts to do, you know, the, the actual business sales folks had parts to do, but we're all working towards that one clear, defined mission. It's kind of like, you know, when Kennedy said we're going to the moon and coming back, right? Our go to the moon statement is how do we drive better outcomes for our members? You know, what do you do? And so we have a, a set list of things, they're not too long. And as we tick them off, we add another thing. But, you know, you can't try to boil the ocean <laughs> right away. Pick one thing that's going to matter and drive towards that. Um, and that's, that's you know. And then you, I talked earlier, you know, about the, you know, you're going to fail. I mean, there's going to be times where you're going to do something and, it, and it's going to fail. You, you can't have a culture of fear in your company of failure. Because if you're scared to fail, you will not progress as fast as if you do something, learn from it, go to the next, um, you know, activity. Uh, no, a failure is only a failure if you don't learn anything from it. And that's, that's kind of how we at GuideWheel treat it. Um, we've kind of instilled in our culture. And so when folks fail, we say, well, what did we learn? How can we do it better? And, you know, as long as they're not, you know, fear-driven, you can accomplish pretty much anything as an organization. Um, so, you know, to me, that's, that's the two big things. Set your mission, set your goal, know what it is, and then don't be afraid of failing. When we went to the moon, we blew a whole lot of rockets up before we got there. You know, but that didn't stop us from getting there. And the same thing here. You know, we we've had some failures. We've we've made some 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 changes that have been great. We've made some changes that have not been so great. But we've learned from them. We quickly adjusted. Um, we're not assigning blame. We're just assigning success. Um, and with, you know, and, and the other, you know, having a partner like IBM that's that's you know in the industry. They know what other folks are doing. And you know what? What are you? What, what's Silicon Valley doing? What's the manufacturing folks doing? What are the transportation companies doing? What are banking doing? They can bring the insight to us, and we can glean the nuggets that they're doing their successes um, from what you guys are seeing across the industry. So you can't be afraid to to kind of open up and, and partner with a company like IBM because they, you know, they may not have all the answers in your particular case, but they can tell you what they're seeing everywhere, and uh, we've benefited greatly from that, you know, from that uh, relationship. So, you know. For me, that's, that's what you got to do. Have your mission. Don't be afraid to fail and don't be afraid to lean on some partners that are seeing what's going on in industries outside of your, your space. So, Wow, some uh, spectacular takeaways there. Well, James, thanks so much for an amazing uh, conversation. It's been a pleasure to get to know you uh, personally, to get to know your uh, background and, and your career path and just some stunning takeaways for people listening through that whole process of how you've developed your data strategy, your approach to, I guess, transforming to adopting AI and the selection of the various platforms. 
Again, thank you for joining us for IBM Power Systems From Here to AI podcast. If you are interested in learning more information about navigating the journey of implementing AI into your business, please visit ibm.com slash enterprise AI. That's ibm.com slash enterprise AI. I'm Des Blanchfield, and we'll see you next time on From Here to AI.